Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Okay, folks, I've got big news for you today. Are you ready? Today's episode is not on the Build Back Better plan. Repeat, we are talking about legislation today that is not Build Back Better. Okay, well, maybe we'll talk about Build Back Better just a little, but mostly not. So then what are we talking about? Well, today we wanted to discuss the growing momentum for legislation dealing with the ongoing supply chain and competition issues the U.S. economy is facing. And that could have important implications for tax. To help me cover that issue today, we have our friends with us, Tom Stout and Jennifer Gray. But before we get to that topic, I just want to address the item that is the big news here in Washington over the last 24 hours. And I'm afraid it's not good news. Last night, we learned that Senator Ben Ray Lujan, a Democratic senator from New Mexico, had a stroke and he had emergency surgery and is presently hospitalized. Now, you know this. This is a tax policy webcast, not a medical one. So we would never speculate on the senator's health. The only comment from this quarter is that we wish him a speedy recovery and a speedy return to work. So let's just set aside the question of the senator's health and his return to Washington. And Jennifer, I want to ask you a different question. It's a very practical question. As everybody listening knows, we have a 50-50 divide in the Senate. So my question is this, are there immediate implications for the functioning of the Senate, as long as there are, for now, only 49 Democratic senators able to be present for a vote? Well, I think for practical purposes, the major impact could be, at least as far as legislation, on the fact that you need three-fifths of all senators in order to pass most legislation, assuming there's a filibuster threat, which of course generally means 60 votes. Uh, so if you have one less Democrat, then theoretically you would need one more Republican in order to pass legislation. So now theoretically, assuming all 50 Democrats would support a piece of legislation, you would need 10 Republicans. If you have 49 Democrats, then of course that would increase to a minimum of 11 Republicans. So that's one impact. Let me just ask you a question because that sounds like a real impact, right? We need to find one more Republican. But my experience, you tell me if you disagree, in these cases, if you get 10, you're usually going to get more than 10. I mean, I, I think about the bipartisan infrastructure framework that passed earlier this year, which, you know, we're wondering, are there going to be 10 Republicans to get to 60 votes on that? In the end, I think we had 69 votes for that legislation. So 19 Republicans came along. Is that your experience that if you get a substantial number, nine or 10, you're probably going to get more? Or do you think this could really matter? I think you're right, John. I think, you know, you generally don't see legislation passed with exactly 60 votes. You know, sometimes the question is who will be that, in this case, 10th Republican to support the legislation. And once that number is achieved, then you're right. You generally have a couple more folks that are comfortable jumping on the legislation at that point. So I think you're right. I mean, for practical purposes, the impact may be negligible, but theoretically it could have an impact. Okay. So that's the 60 vote world. Now you're probably going to take us to another place now. So let me let you continue. Well, I think the second question to bring in the Build Back Better Act, which of course is a reconciliation bill, which is the plan of Democrats is to try to pass out legislation under the special budgetary rules that would allow that to pass with a majority of senators. In this case, it's actually a majority of those present and voting, assuming there's a quorum. So it, there could be an, very much an impact there. If you have senators missing, that may change that magic number of 51 votes. In this case, not only is, of course, a senator out potentially with a stroke, we don't know for how long, but it's been very interesting so far this calendar year. And of course, we've had issues over the past years plus with various members being out, particularly folks testing positive for COVID. And so the number of actual senators in the chamber at any given time eligible to vote and able to vote really has been fluctuating.
fluctuating a bit. And so, yeah, theoretically, I think that could be an interesting situation, depending on how many senators are missing. You could actually need perhaps less than 51 votes to pass legislation. On the other hand, assuming all Republicans are there and the Democrats only have 49 Democrats there to vote in favor of the Build Back Better Act, unless a Democrat is able to convince a Republican to either vote in favor of the legislation, which I think is unlikely, or to abstain from voting in favor of the legislation, so just vote present, which sometimes does happen when you have one member of the opposite party who is absent due to health issues. Sometimes there is an agreement that another member of the opposite party will abstain from voting just as a senatorial courtesy. In such a situation, you could end up with only 98 senators voting, in which case it would be a tie vote again. And again, you would have the situation where the vice president could break that tie if you were able to get one Republican to agree to vote present as a courtesy. The other option, of course, if all Republicans voted no and 49 Democrats voted yes, then of course that piece of legislation would fail. So it could result in some interesting situations. So the math is complicated. As you suggest, if at any given moment, for example, some Republicans are out because they potentially have COVID, that changes the calculus. Of course, Democrats can get COVID too. So it's going to be a moving target for a little bit here in terms of if they can get 50. Now, it's a separate question. as to Are they going to vote on Build Back Better anytime in the short term? Probably not. Maybe just to add one last aspect to this, ask you, Jennifer, we also have nominations, right, to deal with. So we obviously have Justice Breyer announced his retirement. At some point, we're going to have a new Supreme Court justice to be confirmed. That is typically a 50-vote process as well. So this, in theory, could implicate that. Is that right? It certainly could have an impact on that. The issue there, of course, is that assuming Republicans were to filibuster a nominee, that a majority would be needed to stop that filibuster. For legislation, in order to stop a filibuster, you need a supermajority. For nominations to stop a filibuster, you need a simple majority. So the Democrats, as I understand it, would still need 50 votes in order to move forward on the floor with a nominee then just to come back to Build Back Better, it was complicated before because we've talked about it at length on this podcast, the complexities of getting the 50 votes already, you know, Joe Manchin's issues, Kirsten Sinema's issues, just add one additional complexity to in the immediate short term. We don't know for how long to the future of Build Back Better. All right, well, enough on that. Let's go back to our topic of today. We were talking about 60 vote priorities. So speaking of 60 vote priorities, Tom, the House has been working this week on a bill, I think it's called the America Competes Act. The Senate has its own version of this. I think it's called USICA, which is U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, previously approved in the Senate. What are these things about? What's this sudden rush to do this particular legislation? What's the background? And what are these bills intended to actually do? Well, the Senate passed its version of the bill back in, I believe it was June last year, and been sitting around since then. Clearly, what's aroused new interest among Democrats, particularly in the House, is that BBBA is stalled for the moment, and they want to appear to be doing something positive. And this bill this is a broad industrial policy bill, but one that has the potential to attract some significant bipartisan support. The Senate passed its version with 68 votes in the Senate, so it does have that kind of potential support. The House bill they're debating today at the moment doesn't look like it's going to attract much, if any, Republican support because the Democrats have now included some new Democratic priorities in it. But there are things that can be worked out with the Senate. It's something to show progress on 
while the BBBA remains solid, something they can talk about as a positive. It's an industrial policy bill. It has a revenue cost of about $95 billion. That's particularly attractive because they're not offsetting the cost. So there's no downside from that respect. And it addresses things that people are interested in, people that things that are problems today, like encouraging and financing semiconductor production in the U.S., addressing all sorts of other supply chain issues, which are currently driving inflation. It has funding for R&D in the U.S., and it addresses some of the trade issues, particularly with China, although that could be a little bit controversial because I think the uh, some of the Republicans want to go further in how they deal with China. But it's also a popular, potentially bipartisan policy that has the potential to sort of take people's attention away from the fact that the BBBA is stalled. So there's lots to like in there. Just to unpack that a little bit, Tom, and you can see why it maybe has some momentum. First of all, bicameral. So the House and the Senate both have competing versions of this. There are differences, but not irreconcilable, perhaps, differences. That's part one. Part two is bipartisan support, so bicameral and bipartisan. A number of Republicans in the Senate have expressed support for the Senate version of this, and we'll see what happens in the House. But there's at least the chance of getting the all-important 60 votes in the Senate. It is not paid for, as you say, so we don't have to worry about tax increases in this one or other controversial offsets. And then lastly, as you say, there's things like R&D and supply chain and semiconductors. I mean, this is easy stuff for a lot of members in both the House and the Senate to rally behind. So, Tom, in those various descriptions, the one thing I didn't hear you say, though, is tax. So do we have anything in tax in either of these bills we should be keeping an eye on? Not really. There are no tax increases in here. There is one relatively minor provision, credit for health care related to trade adjustment assistance. But the important point here is there are no tax increases to offset the $95 billion cost of the bill. So that's something else that makes us particularly attractive. And no major tax credits or you know benefits, especially on the business side, it sounds like. Right. Okay. All right, well, then let's continue with this conversation on tax because folks listening might now say, why are we having this conversation again? So Jennifer, Tom talked about the Competes Act. We talked about USICA, which is the Senate version. There were other iterations of these similar things. There was something called the CHIPS bill and there was endless frontiers. So let's just talk about tax for a moment. Putting aside this healthcare credit that Tom mentioned, are there other possible tax proposals that we've seen circling around this issue that could find their way into this legislation? You know, there are, and I think there's been some confusion here because there were some tax items that were included in some previous versions of the bill, but those have not been enacted so far. But they are floating out there. In particular, I think the one that's had a lot of support, including both the chairman and the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, is basically an investment tax credit. It's a 25% ITC for semiconductor manufacturing and equipment and facilities and the like. And so, you know, that idea is out there. It certainly has bipartisan support in the Senate, at least. So I think certainly there will be folks who would be interested in seeing if that could perhaps become part of the conversation. That would be obviously an interesting one to those in the semiconductor industry. That'd be a big deal. Let me just ask about another possible one that you did not mention, Jennifer, but it's arguably seem related to this idea of research and development. Tom, maybe sort of see you really quick. We've been anxiously watching the Section 174 negotiations, whether or not they will extend the ability to deduct the costs associated with R&E that began being capitalized on January 1st of this year. Is this the kind of thing you think could sneak into this bill? Is it close enough to what they're trying to do here? 
That's a good question. I think it's got a shot. It's obviously very closely connected to the, the subsidies that are providing in the bill for research and development in the U.S., and it has bipartisan support. I don't think anyone thinks amortization of R&D is a particularly good idea on either side of the aisle. Potential political problem is sort of a floodgates problem. Once you introduce a new tax change, that you then if you're in the leadership, you've got to fend off 500 other tax provisions that other members are interested in putting in and tell them why they can't do it. But this one may be closely connected enough to the R&D incentives in the bill that it makes it easier to justify telling everybody else no. So I think it's got a reasonable shot. And it's cheap. As I recall from our Build Back Better revenue tables, the four-year extension of this is something like $4 billion. I mean, it's not free, but it's close to free as you're going to get in this world. But so just to expound a little bit more on the point you're making, the pros and cons of adding it in, because you look at it and go, why wouldn't they? It costs almost nothing. Republicans and Democrats support it. The business community wants it. But as you were saying, there is a downside, there's a potential risk of adding a tax title to this that so doesn't really currently exist. So just a little more on why that could complicate matters. The problem is that you've got to tell everybody else who has a pet tax provision that they think is the greatest thing around, why they can't get it in the bill, why this one's going in, but not theirs. And the reason they have to do that is then those members have to go explain to their constituents how that one got in and theirs didn't. It becomes a little bit tricky politically unless you can explain it. And the explanation here is this is very closely connected with what we're trying to do in the bill, which is to incentivize R&D in the U.S., and we're working in the same direction. And then, as you say, John, the revenue cost under the, the miracles of Washington accounting, if you extend it for four years and under 10-year budget accounting, the revenue all comes back in within the 10-year budget window. It doesn't appear to cost anything. So there are a lot of reasons why this could get done. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And once you create a tax title and open up the tax code, you know, it's one thing when there is no tax provision in there and you can tell people, sorry, there's no tax title to this bill. We cannot take any amendments or any provisions related to tax. But you can't say that anymore. You're right. It's not just 174. You think about all the expiring items that are expiring this year. Think about 163J going from EBITDA to EBIT. I mean, it just becomes far more complicated. So that is one piece of friction in getting anything meaningful in tax into the bill is once you start, it's hard to stop. All right, Jennifer and Tom, I'm going to ask you both this question. This is really our last question, but let me start with you, Jennifer. Timing. We just set out this scenario where it sounds like there's at least a chance that this bill could get done, and at least there's a chance that there could be some tax in this. So people, will, of course, want to know when. So what else is on the agenda? When might this be able to fit into the agenda, in particular the Senate, to get done? Well, I think everyone is still figuring that out, but one day to perhaps look at is that the president is scheduled to give a State of the Union on March 1st, and he certainly would, I think, love to have some wins to be able to highlight at that point. Some folks had hoped maybe the BBBA would be something he could discuss during that conversation. I think given the current situation, that might be hard to do. So perhaps something like this, if not actually enacted, at least making some significant progress, maybe a at least short-term goal. Okay, that's a good one. March 1st. Now we've got another important date between now and March 1st. <laughs> Do you want to remind us what else is on the agenda that they have to knock off maybe before they can turn to this legislation? 
the government got a shutdown on February 18th if they don't get a, a budget done or at least another short-term extension, which may be more likely at this point. But yeah, they do have that coming up as well. But this is, a, as it's being worked on in the House, is this is currently a 2,900-page piece of legislation. And there are some significant differences between the House and the Senate bill that they're going to have to work out, particularly since there seems to be little or no Republican support for the Democratic version that's currently passing the House. So they've got a way to go. Also, as Jennifer says, and I guess this gets back to what I said at the beginning, changing the conversation may be something that at least the Democrats will be wanting to do, especially when Biden's delivering his State of the Union address on March 1st. Now that the BBBA seems to be stalled. Yeah, I agree, Tom. I think that mid-February deadline is probably too soon, given the disagreement with some of the provisions. I mean, not only do you have Republican-Democrats differences in the House, but of course, there are differences between the Senate passed a bill on similar topics, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast. And so there are differences between those two bills that in some ways would need to be worked out, because obviously an identical bill would have to be able to pass both the Senate and the House. March 1st may be ambitious for that, but I certainly think two weeks to meet that spending deadline is probably too quick. Yeah, well, the president could talk about it on March 1st without actually having yet had a chance to sign it. They could be deep into negotiation. So one last question for you, maybe, Jennifer, to wrap this up. Remind us, what are their options between the House and the Senate trying to reconcile these meaningful differences that Tom outlined? You really have a few options. One is the traditional option, which is the Senate appoints conferees, the House appoints conferees, and you have a conference that has not tended to happen very often lately, but that is certainly a a, a possibility. You often have sort of pre-conference situations where the House and Senate leadership gets together and negotiates a bill and then agrees upon the bill, and then that goes to the House and Senate and passes. At this point, given where the bill is, perhaps the difference between the two is somewhat minor, but, you know, one would probably have a broader group of senators and House members involved in the conversation. And then, of course, you always have the good old-fashioned ping-pong where a bill is passed by one House and over to the other. They make changes, send it back to the House, and that continues until the two are able to agree on identical wording. So it seems like it could take some time, keeping in mind that they've got to deal with funding the government. We didn't even mention this, but there's also a Russia sanctions bill that seems to have some urgency that could be in line in front of this as well. So it could take some time, but you're right. I mean, it is, I think, the next thing to be looking for. And the question is, will it have a tax title? If it does have a tax title, how big will that tax title get? It'll be one of the interesting things to watch over the next month or so. Well, that's all we have time for today. Tom, Jennifer, thank you very much. Let me conclude briefly by reflecting on our last episode. You may recall that one was titled Breaking Up is Hard to Do. And we discussed President Biden's stated strategy that Build Back Better might have to be broken up and moved in smaller pieces. We pondered aloud exactly what that might look like and how we might get pieces of Build Back Better through a narrowly divided Senate. Well, there you go. Enter today's discussion. If Section 174 can hitch a ride on the USICA legislation, well, there's a meaningful piece right there. But then the question to me is, how many other USICA-like bills are out there? Maybe many, maybe none. But also consider this. Section 174 really is the lowest of hanging fruit. It's a tax cut, or at least the prevention of a tax increase, depending on how you look at it. It has substantial bipartisan and bicameral support. And as we said, it costs almost nothing. And even then, remember, it's not in the bill yet. For now, that remains just a glimmer in the eye of much of K Street. 
So USICA, with its bipartisan and bicameral support, it might just be a legislative unicorn for 2022. And for that matter, so might Section 174. So we should use caution in how far we extrapolate this current instance. An instance, I'll reiterate, hasn't even happened yet. So where then does that leave the rest of Build Back Better? Well, maybe, for example, some of the energy incentives could find a home in another bill at some point this year. But what about those tax increases? Proposals we know Republicans are unlikely to support. Well, for those, I believe the best vehicle remains Build Back Better itself. So you see, the breakup strategy, it only gets you so far. And for each piece that gets broken off, well, that makes those left behind that much harder to do. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I do hope to see you soon.